you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from the Chris Voss Show. TheChrisVossShow.com. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. The family loves you dearly, dearly, much more than your mother-in-law probably does. Uh, so that's the beauty of it. Anyway, guys, uh, we have an amazing author and journalist on the show today. I'm excited to have him. He's joining us uh, by audio, and uh, he's got his amazing new book out. It's called Gangbuster, One Man's Battle Against Crime, Corruption, and the clan just came out March 28th, 2023. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to talk about him uh, on the show. Uh, he is on the show as Alan Prendergast. I imagine that's who he is. Uh, he's not on here as that, but he is. It sounded funny at the time in my head. I don't know. What can I say? Uh, Alan is the author of a true crime book, The Poison Tree, and an award winning journalist whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone. Outside, 60 Minutes, and the Los Angeles Times Westward, and numerous other publications and anthologies. His new book, the one we just mentioned, is an account of the life and times of Philip Van Seis. Do I have that yes. right, uh, yes, Alan? Seis, there we go. Uh, the Denver district attorney who battled mobsters in the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s when the Klan was in the process of taking political control of Colorado. Welcome to the show, Alan. How are you? I'm great, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you as well. Uh, give us the dot coms, wherever social sites you want people to go see you on the interwebages. The uh, the best place to go is alanprendergast.com. That's Alan with A-L-A-N and Prendergast with that R in it, not the famous Pendergast machine. But yes, and uh, always great to hear from readers or potential readers. There you go. There you go. And so, uh, you know, you've is this isn't your first book, to my understanding, correct? Right. Yes, I did a true crime book about this murder case in Wyoming years ago, but that was a contemporary story. This this is going back a hundred years. It's a little different kind of project. Yeah. There you go. And so, what motivated you on to write this book? What brought it to your forefront? You know, I heard pieces of this story over time. Uh, I grew up in Denver, and they're just this is a big missing chapter in local history, and, and also I think nationally because the Klan was a national phenomenon in the 20s, and not many people know much about how it actually operated and how it was different from the Klan we think about in the Deep South after the Civil War or the Klan you know, later Klan that was bombing churches and things like that. This was a mainstream political movement, and I heard a little bit about this here and there, and, and I've ultimately got interested in this guy called Van Seis, who uh, was DA for four years in the 20s, just one term. And, but boy, he packed a lot into that term. Uh, and, and there was a lot going on there, and, and I felt like I had only a fragmentary history of it. So I, I sort of made a resolution to myself that I was going to find some of those missing pieces. And that's what I basically set out to do, working different archives, um, you know, retracing just what happened with all this crazy stuff. There you and, go. So, and, yeah, uh, you know, 
There you go. And so you decided to write about it and tell this story that uh, has largely been untold. I, I saw some of the different research on it. Uh, clan members walking through Denver. Uh, some of the, There was a lot of terror and hate that went on with it. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, you know what was going on. What, what led up to him having to take this on uh, locally there? On yeah, the well, he, he's an intriguing figure because he was in some ways, I mean, he was from a good family, not a rich family, but it was sort of part of the establishment. And he was well known because he had been a captain in the, in the National Guard, and then he had been a lieutenant colonel in World War One. He had a decorated officer who was in military intelligence. And he comes back to Denver after the, the big war and uh, naively, perhaps, to some extent, figures, well, I can run for district attorney and help do something about all this crime that we seem to be experiencing after the war. Um, when he gets into office, he realizes that, in fact, the whole city is much more corrupt than he realized. And wow. that, uh, so his first, the first part of the book really concerns itself with him trying to root out this corruption and this organized crime group that is that is operating in Denver with pretty much impunity. Uh, it's, it's really a national network of confidence men who do the big con, where they fleece rich tourists out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which back then, I mean, that's like millions of dollars. Today. Yeah. Um, and how he, how he fights them is ingenious, and I don't want to give away too much, but basically he develops new ways of doing surveillance that uh, – are a little ahead of their time. I mean, in, in terms of electronic surveillance of criminals. Um, and he builds a case against these guys very secretly and very painstakingly for months. And lo and behold, actually, uh, you know, manages to up in this gang and, and, and to some extent the power structure in, in the town. And he's a very popular guy. The, the irony is that he's then about to go to an even greater investigation, a more complex one involving the Klan. And by the time he leaves office, he's probably the most unpopular man in Colorado. Wow. Um, you know, he, he's sort of, it's sort of an indication of uh, vet your candidates or some kind of cautionary tale about that because he, he, was, he was implored to run for mayor at that point. And excuse me, sorry about that. Um. And, and he didn't run for mayor. The person who did run for mayor was a Klansman, mm -hmm. uh, secretly. He, people didn't know that until after he took office and started appointing other Klansmen to various offices. So, oh, wow. you know, it was the corruption he'd fought to begin with now is much worse. Instead of worrying about cops who are mobbed up, he's worrying about cops who are in with the Klan. Wow. Uh, and, and it all complicates how he, how he can do his job or not. Yeah, because if the you know the guys on the ground and and help with the enforcement of being a DA uh, are are uh, working for the other side, it's yeah, it's 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 there's a lot of collusion going on there. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, they were these guys weren't just like, hey, we're just here for politics, and uh, it was like terrorizing. They were terrorizing Catholics, black people, uh, uh, all the different folks that usually expect the Klan to go after. And they were just trying to rule by uh, terror and, and domination and force. Well, there's a lot of intimidation. Um, mm -hmm. And in some states, it was a lot worse than Colorado. I mean, I, I'm talking about the level of violence, like in Texas or mm -hmm. Indiana or Louisiana. But Colorado had one of the largest followings. And that's sort of a hard thing to explain because, you know, historically, they didn't have the racial violence of, you know, the South or even someplace like Oklahoma, where in the 20s you had this massive riot in Tulsa, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it was a, it was a, it was a uh, 
uh, a, a racial thing going on there. Um, but what they, they, they seem to just find ready soil here, I guess, very fertile ground for them because they were really about being the answer to whatever the problem was. I mean, they would change their message from, you know, we got to do something about this group and then target a different group, uh, the Catholics, the Jews, the blacks, immigrants in particular. There was a lot of resentment and concern about, you know, the immigrant population was getting larger and we need to do something about this. These people are taking jobs away from real Americans, you know, that whole, that whole uh, spiel. But it was a 1920s version of that, and and really there were a lot of people who felt strongly about that, or else they just saw some opportunity in the Klan, you know, that maybe this will help my business, something like that. Uh, So you had all kinds of people. You had this sort of real hardcore believers in white supremacy, but you also had a lot of people who were maybe small business people trying to get ahead or find some advantage. And there was, it seemed like there was a little bit of a, a kind of mafia sort of thing, you know, like people had to make payments to them, you know, that old. Well, it's, it, you know, that that's sort of the other side of it. The Klan portrayed itself as this big law and order thing. It was really a money-making enterprise. Van Size was one of the few people to really start investigating it as a criminal fraud, right? I mm-hmm. mean, they're bamboozling their own members. They're taking all kinds of money from these guys, and no one's accountable for it. Millions of dollars were being wow. raised across the country by the various clan enterprises and nobody knows where the money went. I mean, it was, it was being skimmed at various levels. Plus they were taking kickbacks from bootleggers. I mean, these guys were saying, Oh, we're all, we're all for prohibition, but they let the, they let crime thrive and they took payoffs for it. Just the same as if they were gangsters. So, you know, it, it was, it was really not that much different from Van Size's perspective than fighting the con men is, is, is just end up fighting the clan as well. Yeah, I saw a map of the uh, KKK membership ledger residences in, in Denver, and it was like, it's like, holy crap. Uh, the book uh, had nearly 10, 30,000 entries of of all sorts of uh, money laundering. You know, it's still a mafia thing. Yeah, it's a, a nice business you have here. Uh, be ashamed if something happened to it. You should buy some protection. You know, it's, you know, that's sort of corruption. And, and it sounds like they were all in the political sphere of, of uh, mayor's judges. Uh, right. This happened very rapidly. I mean, Van Sice couldn't really stop them in their tracks. I mean, he did some interesting things that kept them from taking over as completely as they would have liked to. Mm-hmm. But but from the time that he, he decided not to run for mayor himself and this other guy, Stapleton, became the mayor, uh, within a few months, Stapleton had appointed a Klan chief of police. He'd appointed a Klan city attorney. And within a few months after that, the state Republican Party had been taken over by the Klan. Wow. And that was Van Sys's party. So he fought pretty hard against that. But in the elections of 24, which is, you know, the, the, the state elections, the presidential election, all that, was the, was the Klan's high point. They, they in, particularly in Colorado, they dominated the legislature. They took over most public offices. They were very powerful. And it was obviously very dangerous for somebody like Van Sys to be on the outs with them and trying to figure out ways to indict them. Yeah. And, and so what, what, what made this man have this sort of semblance of character? Because, you know, even today in politics, we don't see a lot of bravery and courage. Uh, you know, we see a lot of, you know, well, I, I don't want to go against what the party says or who people who right. elected me or, you know, anything that's not politically, you know, anything that's morally expedient doesn't seem to be politically expedient. 
Um, what made this uh, gentleman, you know, have that sort of, uh, yeah, that sort of uh, character? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I spent some time going into his own background and his family. He was very influenced by his father, who was a progressive fellow, uh, a lawyer, a minister, and, and very high moral standards. And I think he had taught Vance Eyes from a very early age to stand up for what is right. And although he and his father didn't see eye to eye on everything, he really, I think, absorbed that lesson. And he was fearless. Uh, he had, even before he became DA, he had been a kind in, in a situation as as a guard, as a member of the National Guard, where he had to sort of blow the whistle on some of his fellow guardsmen after this violent confrontation with striking miners that became known as the Ludlow Massacre. Oh yeah, uh, this was about 1914, and Van Sice was not part of that. Uh, confrontation, but he was sent down by the governor to investigate it, and he recommended that various fellow guardsmen be court-martialed, and that some, one of them be tried for murder for shooting a prisoner in the back. And, uh, you know, that didn't make him any friends. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it got him, you know, he resigned from the guard shortly after because none, all this stuff was whitewashed as far as he was concerned. Wow. But that gave him a reputation as a guy who just, you know, he's going to go his own way and he's going to, he's going to call you out if you do something wrong. Um, and I think that really was a formative experience for him. And when he comes to face the Klan later, he's not exactly intimidated by these guys. There you go. Why why do you feel this story hasn't been widely told and researched much? Is it is it kind of just one of those dark things where people are like, yeah, we we really don't want to talk about that in our history? Well, I think that's part of it. I mean, I think Van Sice was kind of a reminder of a time when a lot of people, a lot of politicians in this town, prominent people, got their start, you know, under a sheet here with with the Klan, and wow. people didn't want to be reminded about that. The interesting thing you mentioned the ledger. I mean, the ledger survives to this day, and you can actually go online now at History Colorado, and if you had if you had relatives in Denver in the 1920s, you could put in their name and see if they were Klan's people, wow. you know, if they were official card-carrying members of the Klan. You don't have that in many states. I mean, the, most of those records were destroyed a long time ago. Every state tried to sort of cover up this chapter of their past. I think only in recent years are we looking at it more closely, and, and that was one reason I think the Van Size story suddenly comes to the fore. It's been suppressed for so long, but it's it's actually a story about, you know, someone standing up in a dark time and doing the right thing. There you go. And, you know, these are the stories that I love in human history. And this is why, there, you know, we, we have a lot of historians like yourself that come on the show and help enlighten and, and, uh, and uh, educate people on, on uh, you know, history and what's, what's gone before. Because to me, you know, I mean, we still see that these issues aren't resolved or these issues of hate and loathing or blaming the immigrant and, you know, pointing the finger at, well, this person's, you know, responsible for your problems while they're stealing from your pocketbook, you know? Yeah. Um, and we seem to not learn these lessons and they keep repeating and recycling themselves. You know, we saw this in politics recently with the, uh, you know, there's the Charlottesville, the Jews will not replace us. People that went out, the racists that went out, and uh, I think they were KKK, I don't, uh, Nazism, I think, but, you know, they were, they're doing that whole bit. And you're like, you know, you talk about this happening in 1920. This is happening in, <laughs> this is happening in, uh, you know, 2017 or 2016. Oh, sure. And, and you're like, wow, man, we haven't learned much over. And it's the same sort of bit argument that politicians will try and sell to separate divide and conquer. And it's, it's always amazing to me that as a people, 
we don't sit at, at human beings and go, hey, you know, we saw that movie in 1920 or, you know, pick your date. Yeah. No, I had you know, yeah, that observation. The, the, uh, as I was doing this, I kept, you know, without necessarily seeking it out, I kept finding parallels to things in our own experience. That's for yeah. sure. You know, the plan had its own newspapers. It had its own, it had some radio stations. Uh, you, you, if you were a true believer in the Klan, you could spend all your time in your own echo chamber listening to these conspiracy theories about how Catholics were trying to take over the world or the plans for Jewish domination, you know. And this stuff, some of this stuff coming out of anti-Semite tracts from Tsarist Russia, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's been around for years, and it's just being recycled. Yeah. And it was being done for the same reasons. Um, one of the most trenchant things I came across was actually a quote from LBJ, this is 40 years after the Klan in the 20s, right? Mm -hmm. And he's observing to a colleague, he's saying, if you, if, if you tell the worst, lowest white man that he's better than the best black man, he won't notice that you're picking his pocket. Yeah. That describes the Klan in a nutshell. That's exactly the kind of misdirection they were up to. They were peddling hate as a way of finding someone to blame for something, and they were making money off it. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was really what it was all about. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that sort of politics goes back to, I mean, the beginning of time, uh, Greek, <laughs> Romans, <laughs> you know, you can go, it's just astounding to me. You know, I, I always use the phrase that I, it's a quote from me, that's the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history, <laughs> and thereby we go round and round. And so that's why I love books like yours and stories like yours, because they bring a light to it. And then we need to champion these heroes. We need to champion it, and usually we're good about that. We're good at we're good at you know, but but sometimes we let it get really freaking ugly before we decide that hey, well it's time for the hero journey there, and uh, we should have uh, you know the hero come out and save the day, you know, at the darkest point of no return. And, and we need to just get better, I think, as a human race at going at seeing stuff ahead of time and going, you know, this doesn't end well. History's taught us that, you know. Right. Well, uh, the problem is I think his, heroes are sometimes inconvenient. We want them at the right moment when there's yeah. a crisis. Yeah. But they can be, you know, I mean, to be as blunt as Van Sice was, was a liability in a lot of situations. I mean, there were, yeah. there, 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 there were times when possibly he could have been a little more tactful or a little less, you know, inflexible in his own views. And maybe, maybe he could have built a stronger coalition against the Klan, that kind of thing. But he what that isn't who he was. And that isn't who these guys tend to be. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we can, we can, we can welcome them when we want them, but we don't always want them around. Yeah. I mean, you look at somebody like Churchill, you know, and the bravery and stuff, but you know, before that they didn't want him. They sent him home exactly. and said, nah, we're done with your shit. And then, you know, Oh, Hey, can you come back and save us for this, uh, uh, this Nazi dude? And then, and then after that, you know, Oh, thanks for winning the war. Hey, you know what? We're done with you again. Again, and, yes. put him out to patch. That's kind of what happened with Van size. I mean, he really, wow. any future political career he could have had, I think was pretty much gone by, the number of people he managed to alienate or alarm with his wow. attacks on the Klan. But I don't think he would have changed any of that. I mean, he had no regrets yeah. about what he was doing. And one of the, you know, in particular with his story and other stories like his, where they stand up against uh, immense, uh, you know, uh, they're going to make enemies of friends and and they're probably going to risk losing it all. They're probably going to risk losing their, their future, uh, maybe aspirations of political uh, things like you mentioned, um, and they're willing to—they're willing to doing what's right and what's just. 
uh, is more important than that. And they sacrifice themselves on an altar. And I think that's why it's important, like stories like yours, again, I say, um, that we need to recognize these people and value them. And then also learn from the history of what that should have taught us. Well, and, and in this case, I, I don't want to over, uh, you know, over, overemphasize it, but what started out in, in some ways is him, you know, legitimately pursuing what he thought were criminal inquiries about a group that didn't seem to him completely, you know, uh, following the Constitution. Um it became increasingly a liability for him. I mean, he was physically threatened. There were situations he was in that could have gone much worse than they did. Uh, they tried to kidnap him one night. Wow. He carried a gun for the last part of his year in office. You know, and this is not the Wild West anymore, but it's, it's you know, these are the people you want to meet in a dark street, right? So, I mean, there was, in addition to sacrificing his career, there was great personal risk to him and to some extent to his family and what he was doing. Um, and, but he didn't back down. I mean, I, I think he always felt that one of the ways you were going to beat these guys was to not give in an inch to any of their threats or anything like that. And I imagine he had a family, a wife and kids, didn't he too? Yes, he did. And yeah. there's a famous story. Uh, this is sort of near the end of this whole thing um, where he's, he's supposed to give a talk at a Memorial Day service for, you know, the veterans and the dead of World War One and previous wars, and the Klan does a parade that day. One of the pictures in the book you mentioned. I mean, there's a there's a Klan parade in downtown Denver with these guys in their robes, and Van Sice takes the occasion of the speech to criticize these guys and say, you know, they have no business marching on a Veterans Day. You know, with the sacrifices that the military has made, the, you know that this day is for them. It's not for these these bozos in white suits. And they were so upset with that, they, they, they wanted to, you know, get back at him some way. They burned a cross on his lawn. Wow. And his, his kids remember from those years, you know, that they were young enough that they thought, well, this is like 4th of July, it just came early. Wow, this is pretty. <laughs> this thing. The, point, the point is that Van Sice and his whole family jeered at them over this. It's like, this is the wow. best you got. You come back, you want to just vandalize my property. That's it. Oh. And I mean, it's, it's an amazing moment that signals, in a way, just how the Klan no longer had the the fear factor that it had before. I mean, the wow. burning cross was supposed to be like the biggest threat they could make, right? And yeah. I was just saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't home when you did that. Try it again. I'll be I'll be there waiting for you. Give you yeah. a warm welcome. Yeah. I'll send you so, a calendar link. We'll send an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly." I mean, it does take bravery. I mean, I've I've always been able to fight the battles that I want to fight because I don't have a wife and kids. But if you have a family, you know, you you're that that kind of weighs on your decision making. And well, I think know, it did it did influence him not deciding not to run for DA again. I mean, I don't think uh, he would have won anyway because the clan by that point was rigging the elections. But that's another mm -hmm. story. <laughs> There you go. Uh, it's wild, the ride that goes on uh, with with everything. Uh, what do you hope people uh, learn from the book? Well, a couple of things. I mean, this is our history. It's a, it's a chapter we should acknowledge, not just in Colorado, but, I mean, this was happening across the country in some unlikely places. Um, it was obviously not as strong in the Northeast, but there were certainly lots of places in the Midwest, the West, the Southwest, where the Klan did terrible things. And there were there were various people who made accommodations to the Klan, and, and this should be 
looked at and and we should learn from that and I think also, you know, we do recognize something of ourselves when we go back to these stories. We, we see things about the way extremist movements operate and the way they try to soft pedal some of these things in order to get a wider audience. I think some of the same things are going on today. And, um, you know, it, it, it's an education to think about the, how self-serving some of this stuff was. And, you know, there may have been a lot of rhetoric there about patriotism or whatever, but the, a lot of these guys were in it for the money and that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah, it's always it always seems to come down to that bottom line, doesn't it? I mean, no well, yeah, I don't I don't think there there's anybody in American politics that isn't thinking about their own interests at some point, right? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, it's not people aren't uh, you know people aren't just like, hey, I'm just going to do some corruption. Well, is there any money in it? Nah, I'm just kind of doing it just to do it. It just seemed like a fun thing to do. I don't know. Maybe there are criminals that that operate from that aspect but no it's it's like you say the historical nature of it is to run a scam run money make money uh, get power get success um and and thank god there are people like this because when you read stories like yours and and his um you you realize that if there weren't people that stood up and put themselves in the line of fire i mean you can you can tell lots of stories of Martin Luther King and, and uh, Bobby Kennedy and different other people who paid for their lives, um, who were martyred for their cause. Um, and, you know, th these, are, these were dangerous times, and you have to sit and look and go, what if there hadn't been these people that stood the line, that held the line? Uh, what if they had one? You know, you can even look at January 6th. One of the most haunting memories I have of January 6th is seeing that damn-ass Confederate flag in the in the uh in in the uh in the building uh, the u.s government building um to see that flag in there that had never been anywhere near that building before the uh it, during the confederacy made me realize how unresolved these issues are and how they are still playing themselves out so i like book like your like yours because they like you said they take us back and remind yeah. us well i told you I, I sort of went in search of missing pieces one of the pieces i found which has a bearing on this January 6th thing, uh, was the actual speech that Van Sice was supposed to deliver. This is shortly before the elections. He had prepared a whole presentation for the public on what the Klan was up to, who was secretly a Klansman, all this stuff. It was like a PowerPoint. I mean, he had like these lantern slides he was going to project on a screen. This is 1923, right? Um, he never got to deliver this speech, but I found a copy of it in an archive. And so I finally figured out what he was trying to say. What happened that night was that the Klan packed the hall. They they got there before anybody else. The police let them in. There were 4,000 Klansmen in this audience instead of the voting public he hoped to find. And so they shouted him down, and he, he continued to try to present this for five hours, could barely get a word out because they were drowning him out and screaming at him. Mm -hmm. And this was this was a near riot uh, in, in, in the city auditorium in Denver. Um, but but seeing this speech really really filled in some gaps to me because it showed me what he was trying to say that nobody at the time heard that night. I mean, it's yeah. not in the newspaper reports because it was unintelligible what he was trying to do. Yeah, but here's the whole here's the whole case he wanted to make. It's it's really you know it was really satisfying to find that. And this was kind of a this was kind of a real t uh, fight during this time. You know, it, how close was it to being like Chicago? I mean, where you had Al Capone and and uh, evidently there was one central figure uh, you talk about in the book who uh, I think it was uh, uh, Lou 
Blonger? Blonger. 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 Yes. Yeah. yeah, he was the Al Capone. Well, he's not as ruthless as Al Capone. I mean, he didn't kill people uh, routinely, but he was the routinely. fixer in Denver. He had been. A, he was a Denver institution. He was the head of these con man operation that Van Size took down. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that was an important turning point to me. Was uh, Denver was going the way of some other major cities at those times? You know, Chicago, Kansas City, um, and. Really, Van Size helped turn the course of things, and so that it, it, I think it had a little different outcome because he had worked so hard at exposing this corruption. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Klan came in. Yes, the Klan fell apart almost just as fast, and and I think Denver was on a different track thanks to Van Size and some of the people who were also resisting this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it was it was a turning point for me. I mean, I I think that there's no question the city. Uh, the city altered its course to some extent, thanks to what he did. Yeah, probably a good thing too. I mean, yeah, it, we see over the hor the history of our country, we've seen these tests of, you know, the rule of law in the Constitution. And uh, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I've spent enough at, uh, uh, looking over law and, and defending my companies. I mean, in courtrooms or suing people in courtrooms. Um, you know, you you people don't realize how important the power of that is. The rule of law. The, the the thing that one man is not against it and 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 well criminals tend to test it over the over the centuries that this small republic has been around or this new republic has been around um you know how important that is keeping us from you know just becoming all out chaos and and stuff and so you know these battles set a precedence for the future and and in law and uh and also to other people who bring jurisprudence to to um, our legal system to make to ensure that uh, you know everyone's held accountable. At least that's what it's supposed to be. That's well, and, 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 and uh, you know, I, to Van Size's credit, this really was about his adherence to the rule of law. Um, he he was surrounded by people who just were trying to find the most convenient way to go along to get along, and this yeah. included judges. I mean, his, his most one of his biggest enemies when he was uh, fighting the Klan was a district judge who was trying to pack the grand jury with Klansmen. Imagine a grand jury full of Klansmen indicting whoever they choose, right? I mean, that's yeah. crazy. But Van Sice was getting locked out of his own jury room, and he fought this guy tooth and nail, um, you know, because what he was doing was illegal. I mean, he, it's not a question of ideology at some point. Yeah. The Klan had set out to try to recruit him early on because it's like, hey, he's a Republican. He's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He's perfect for us. Mm -hmm. And you know, there were things about his ideology that may have been comfortable to the Klan, but but he there was no way he was going to go with this organization. And he became, you know, they went from trying to recruit him to trying to destroy him in very short order. The yeah. guy who was that judge became the governor, the Klan governor, and ultimately ended up in Leavenworth, which is another story. But oh wow, you know, these guys like were, so, were so wholly corrupt. It was it was incredible. There you go. There there was a lot of that going on in the in this kind of conversion from the wild west to you know trying to have a organized union you know the mormons had that problem when uh the the u.s government sent the military in they couldn't get the you know they couldn't get prosecutions for crimes in the federal bench because uh because they would fill the docket with mormons who wouldn't prosecute each other and so right. rape murder robbery everything was going on and no jury would convict because 
it was just it was just out of control. Well, it, was the same, it was the same thing here with the Klan was was basically yeah. the juries were getting stacked with Klansmen. You couldn't convict a Klansman of a crime, and that wow. was that was very concerning. Uh, you know, it, 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 you have to you have to somewhere take a stand against that, or your whole justice system just goes down the tubes. There you go. Well, it's great to celebrate the men who stand forth and say enough of the bullshit and uh, try and hold, uphold what's right and uh, what's necessary in the rule of law because. I mean, it separates us from becoming a medieval dark times culture where just marauders go from uh, building to building and do whatever they want, whoever has the most power. Uh, so anything more, Alan, you want to share with us and tease out on the book before we go? Uh, you know, I keep coming back to that speech on Memorial Day. It's, it's one of the moments in this whole story that made me feel it was worth doing because what he essentially told the audience, in addition to criticizing the plan for their parade, was was saying, you know, we're in a battle right now that's as important as any of the battles we ever fought in the, war, the Great War or in the Civil War. It's a battle for Americanism. I mean, it's a battle about who gets to decide who's an American and who isn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that struck me as being so right on about who the Klan was and what they were trying to do and how they were trying to divide people and basically disenfranchise half the country, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it it, it it sort of stays with me, and you can understand why it upset the Klan as much as it did. Yeah. He was basically calling them out. And that's awesome, man. Uh, so great story here, uh, brilliant uh, journalism. Uh, give us your .com so people can find you on the interweb, just please. It's alanprendergast.com, A-L-A-N-P-R-E-N. D-E-R-G-A-S-T. And, yes, you can contact me there. I always love to hear from readers and uh, any questions. That's great. There you go. Uh, the the things you learn from history uh, and, the you know, we triumph these many times we triumph or we try to triumph these people who stood up against tyranny, oppression, and uh, people that, that try to do whatever they want. And, uh, you know, usually, hopefully, we remember them and, and celebrate them because they stand between us and the marauders at the door. Um, so this is really important. And, you know, it's the fight over this nation, you know. And when it says we the people in the Constitution, that means everybody. Wow. and Or it's supposed to. You know, let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, we were, uh, what was it that uh, uh, Obama said? You know, we zig and we zag. We're, we're constantly a nation in search of a more perfect union but there's no you never achieve perfection it's always a thing and it, it's interesting when you study the history of this country the 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 tussle that goes on to achieve that perfect union whatever that may be that all men may have the same rights and uh, everyone can you know uh live life liberty in the pursuit of happiness thank you very much alan for coming on the show we really appreciate it Hey, Chris, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. There you go. Thank you. Order the book, folks. Wherever fine books are sold, uh, you can go to Amazon or other places. Gangbuster, one man's battle against crime, corruption, and the Klan. We need more people like uh, Mr. Uh, Philip Van Syce. Uh Order up March 28th, 2023. It became available. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and all those great places on the internet. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time. And that should have us out.